It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And then you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is a pleasure to uh, have our guest today on the show, Jeff Dennis, and he is the Associate Professor of Sociology at McMaster University. He calls himself a settler Canadian of mixed European heritage, ancestry, and uh, as we pointed out, he's an Associate Professor at McMaster University in Sociology, which is, of course, in Hamilton, Ontario. And he uh, broadly says his, his research investigates the social processes that shape the well-being of historically marginalized communities and the strategies, alliances, policies, and practices that can bring about more just and sustainable societies. He's also the author of Canada at a Crossroads, Boundaries, Bridges, and Laissez-Faire Racism in Indigenous Settler Relations. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're here uh, partly because you did, I guess, in, in regard to what we were speaking about and what your, your research and what you've investigated, uh, you wrote an article in the, the, uh, the conversation uh, dealing with this and how the COVID-19 crisis uh, can call us towards reconciliation, which is interesting. Um, and I think I've heard this mentioned before uh, to some degree, but uh, tell us about why you felt that you were you, you needed to write this article. What was it that about COVID nineteen that that compelled you to to want to do this? Well, one of the things that I found in, incredible about the the way Canadians have responded to the pandemic is how they've shown support for frontline workers, for one another, uh, banging pots and pans and putting signs in their windows. Uh, we have statements from political leaders from the prime minister to premier saying we're, we're all in this together and no expense will be spared to ensure the health and safety of Canadians. Um, but when it comes to the inequities facing indigenous communities, inequities that have existed for decades, for centuries, uh, there has been a, a kind of resounding um, silence from these same, many of these same leaders and, and ordinary uh, non-indigenous uh, Canadians. And so I found that um, the, the juxtaposition of those two things, this incredible sense of solidarity and coming together, and we're all in this together over the pandemic, but when it comes to the ongoing crises facing many Indigenous communities, uh, there's not that same uh, response at all. In fact, many non-Indigenous Canadians uh, want to turn away from these issues. They don't want to hear it. Um, and, and so that remains a, an ongoing um, barrier to change. Um, and so what we've actually um, seen um, in, in, the in, the, uh, in the COVID crisis, I think, um, is that um, it's actually um, simply served to highlight those very inequities facing Indigenous communities. Um, if uh, you are a First Nation on a boil water advisory, um, how are you supposed to follow public health guidelines like frequent um, hand washing. If there's issues with housing in the community, overcrowding, um, inadequate um, conditions due to the uh, ongoing lack of funding um, from the federal government, um, how are you supposed to adhere to the uh, physical distancing uh, guidelines and so forth? 
Uh, and so I think we've, we've seen um, in this pandemic that um, it, it's simply exposing those inequities that, that have long existed. A couple of things there that, that you have uh, talked about. Certainly, that's not uh, it's not new in terms of what you're saying about yeah the water the water issue in many communities. Right. How are they supposed to uh, adhere to the to the regulations when they uh, they can't in in some instances they can't use their water. Right. Uh, it would be it would be uh, dangerous for them to 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 put their hands in wa- and use it for those purposes. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, how many how many Canadians um, understand what the what that means when, uh, as you say, we're all in this together, um, and and also um, in light of what has been happening south of the border, um, we've seen yeah. a lot of. Uh, attention uh, being brought back, especially in the last couple of days. I remember, I think as an article might have been today that I saw, where uh, people are saying, uh, "Save some of that, uh, uh, save some of that, uh, that um, frustration and anger uh, for how Indigenous people are being treated in Canada." Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, the issues with police violence and racism that have been. In, in the forefront in the states are, are also here with respect to, to both black people and indigenous people uh, in Canada. And we've seen a number of uh, recent cases of, uh, of, of deaths, of killings of indigenous people following mm-hmm. um, police encounters. Just mm-hmm. in the last few months, there have been um, several of those, um, Chantel Moore in New Brunswick being the, mm-hmm. uh, the latest that I know of. Um, and so, uh, certainly, um, I, I think we're also seeing a, quite a bit of solidarity right now between uh, Black and Indigenous communities, mm-hmm. um, Indigenous people attending Black Lives Matter uh, rallies and and uh, and and uh, more um, awareness, perhaps among uh, Black uh, Canadians of issues facing uh, Indigenous uh, people as well, and that that sense of solidarity, I think, is is quite um, promising. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh- you know, in the article that uh, we were referring to, that was in the conversation, uh, you do mention a couple of things that are that are a little disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. You point out about uh, about uh, uh, this this motion that was is carried in Dryden on April twenty seventh, twenty twenty, where. Uh, you know, the Dryden Council voted uh, a five to two against a motion calling for the resignation of Conservative Senator Lynn Byack, um, and it, it it's not that that bothered me so much, and it wasn't surprising that you yeah. know, I read that. It was more about what you found from your other research uh, mm. and what you know in that area that you were that you you had had you know you that you you found that hey maybe this isn't uh, so uncommon as we might think yeah so senator uh conservative senator lynn bayek is from dryden in, in northwestern ontario uh she had lived in fort francis previously uh, in the same region and and that's where i did the research for my book um canada at a crossroads um and what i found there based on interviews with um, 160 residents, about half of whom were white, half of whom were indigenous, uh, is that the, the kinds of attitudes that uh, Lynn Baic uh, has expressed, uh, as well as some of the letters that, uh, posted to her, uh, her website, um, are actually reflective of, of widespread attitudes among uh, white settlers uh, in that region. Um, what the, one of the 
key terms that I use to refer to this is uh, is an attitude of laissez-faire racism. Mm. That is uh, that many uh, white uh, settlers tend to uh, blame uh, Indigenous people for the kinds of social problems um, that they face, even things like the uh, lack of clean running water, the housing conditions. Um, if they're uh, living in, in economic poverty, uh, many white uh, Canadians think uh, must be it must be their own fault. Um, there's a tendency to to sort of blame them for these conditions that have been created through uh, centuries of of racist and colonialist policies of the Canadian government. Uh, So many uh, white settlers tend to ignore those historical, structural, institutional factors uh, and instead sort of uh, uh, blame the victim. Uh, And then the other other part of this laissez-faire racism is this uh, this idea that we just sort of let things be, let the cards fall where where they are, and there's no need to act any differently, to do anything different, to change uh, the system itself, uh, and that just allows then those um, racist, uh, inequitable policies and institutions to to continue. Um, if we don't actually act proactively to change them. Uh, then that status quo remains in place uh, and that continues to marginalize uh, Indigenous people uh, and white settlers not coincidentally um, uh, benefit in many ways from that system, from access to land, access to resources, the fact that most white Canadians, most settler Canadians can take for granted things like clean running water. Um, That is not necessarily uh, the case for, uh, for many Indigenous people. You know, uh, it wouldn't be the first time I've heard what you were just saying about especially blaming the victim and and, uh, blaming them for their own situation in terms of not having the clean water, uh, housing, etc., etc., uh, the bigger picture, of course, speaks to the a lack of, of knowledge on, on, on the part of settler Canadians to know their history of Canada, to understand treaty process, I guess, is a big one, um, yep. and, and all of that. Um, but laissez-faire, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it goes beyond, I guess, even that, because you could say, why? Why are we, you know, why are so many non-Indigenous Canadians still ignorant of, of what uh, indigenous people have have been dealt over the centuries, um, and 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 dealing with those situations and why they're in that predicament instead of just saying, oh, well, how did you you know not understanding why they got there, how they got put on reserves, how their communities are, and why they're in specific areas where they are, and the yep. and going back to that treaty process of saying, hey, this was a deal, uh, you know, there was supposed to be uh, housing, there was supposed to be looked after, there was supposed to have all this fiduciary responsibility on the part of the government that was part of the trade deal you guys got the natural the land and the natural resources um, yeah. that was part of the deal but people don't seem to to get that they don't they don't even seem to want to try to understand or learn that oh exactly yeah i think there there's a huge lack of understanding of, of the treaties of, of the history of colonization in canada of the impacts on indigenous people uh, but as you're as you're kind of suggesting, I think it's it's not just a, a lack of information, a lack of knowledge, uh, but it, that that many settler Canadians um, know enough to know that they don't want to know anymore. Mm. Right? It's, it's this kind of willful ignorance um, in many cases because there's a sense that what they learn um, could be very uncomfortable, very inconvenient, 
maybe even threatening to their own um, sense of, of who they are and, and their, their position mm -hmm. uh, in society, right? Because mm -hmm. if you learn, if you really understand what the treaties are about and, and what has happened throughout, uh, throughout the history of, of Canada, um, it, it makes you then um, responsible. You, you have uh, certain obligations or responsibilities under the treaty um, that uh, settlers are part of that treaty as well. Uh, and therefore, it's unconscionable to allow the the kinds of uh, situations that we see with with uh, the water, with the housing, with the lack of access to uh, to education, to healthcare in some cases, where uh, kids have to go um, uh, hundreds of kilometers away from their their home to uh, to go to high school, for example, and then don't have the supports necessarily set up in those places. Um, it's almost like the residential school system all over again for in, in some cases. Mm. Um, and so that sort of thing becomes um, unacceptable if you really um, understand you, um, uh, what the treaties are about. Um, that these, these things like the Boil Water Advisory should have been addressed a, a very long time ago. That should be a, a top priority. And when these statements mm. about no expense will be spared mm. to ensure the health and safety of Canadians, mm. that should apply uh, equally to... Uh, indigenous people because we're we're all um, treaty people right um, now there were there were a couple of other things that uh, that you pointed out in the article uh, again heading back up to the Dryden area um, and, and I guess the the research that you did was you said was kind of 50 50 half uh, indigenous half non-indigenous I guess there's a there's a couple of other things that come out of that for me. Uh, do you think you think there is there is uh, education will help? I think I think it will help, but I I don't think that education alone um, is the answer. I think it's certainly part of what what needs to happen. Um, and 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 one of the barriers, as I said, is this. Um, um, uh, an unwillingness to uh, learn. I actually <laughs> had this uh, this pretty incredible quote from uh, a white guy in his 30s at the time uh, at, a, at a dinner party. Uh, there was some discussion about a racist incident that had happened at the local high school. And he actually said, I, I know what I know and I don't want to learn anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> specifically with respect to uh, indigenous people and racism toward indigenous people. Um, so how do you how do you deal with that if you if you're not even open minded enough to learn some new information, right? But but it is when when people do take the step when there's an open mindedness when they seek out the information when they're humble enough to understand that they don't have all the answers or don't know everything already and can actually learn uh, something from indigenous people. Um, I think that makes a difference. I think uh, more kind of um, experiential education, like having the chance to um, sit down um, and go through a shared experience uh, with Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, something that sort of takes uh, white settlers out of their ordinary environment, puts them in a new place um, where the power dynamics are different, where they uh, become... Um, dependent on Indigenous people to learn something, to get through a sort of uh, situation. 
Um, I'm thinking of something, the, uh, a really creative thing that was done by the, the Shoal Lake 40 First Nation, uh, which is on the border of uh, Manitoba and Ontario, has been under boil water advisory for uh, 23 years, I mm. believe. Um, as part of their um, Freedom Road campaign to try to get uh, uh, levels of government to commit funding to build a road that would reconnect their community to the Trans-Canada Highway, um, what they did is they brought in um, settlers, um, uh, city councillors, politicians, and other people to their community. Um, and in order to access the community, they had to go uh, across the channel on this uh, old rickety barge and said, uh, remember, don't, don't put on your seatbelts because if we sink, you're going to have to get out and swim. And, and that was like the start of their, mm. <laughs> their journey over to the community. And then once they're in the community, they go for uh, a tour of what they called the Museum of Canadian Human Rights Violations. Mm. And they showed them um, some of the conditions in the community and told the stories of people trying to cross uh, over uh, when the ice was not, uh, not frozen enough, people falling through the cracks and so forth. Um, and, and so they're, the people who visited the community at that time and went on these tours were, were forced to undergo this experience of what it might be like for Indigenous people in that community on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. That, and this was totally transformative for many right. of the people that experienced that to actually um, to have that to be dependent for the time being on Indigenous people. So the power dynamics are flipped around. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of experience, I think, can be incredibly um, educational and puts people in a state where uh, where they kind of have to be open to new information. Right. Um, so that's the sort of thing uh, that the kind of experience that that might actually make um, a difference. Okay, my guest is uh, Jeff Dennis, and we are talking about his book uh, Canada at Crossroads: Boundaries, Bridges, and Laissez-faire Racism in Indigenous Settler Relations. We will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates and then E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is uh, Jeff Dennis. He is an Associate Professor of Sociology at McMaster University. And we are talking about both an article uh, that uh, he wrote in The Conversation, uh, How the COVID-19 Crisis calls us towards reconciliation and also uh, uh, delving into his book uh, Canada at Crossroads, Boundaries, Bridges and Laissez-Faire Racism in Indigenous Settler Relations. And uh, Jeff, you know, something else from the article that jumps out at me that really, it did get a, a reaction from me uh, and that is that, that people, uh, some, some in northwestern Ontario, uh, referring to their indigenous friends or family members as good Indians. I, I was yeah. very surprised to hear this statement still being uttered uh, into today's day, and uh, I was surprised. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really quite widespread, and um, uh, so um, th th this is... Uh, Part of what I what I refer to as as subtyping, where where settlers will 
make exceptions for um, indigenous people who are friends or mm. even family members. Right. Uh, and they kind of make these like mental exceptions for these individuals um, so that they can retain a, a stereotype of the group as a whole. Right. So have uh, good Indians and bad Indians. Right. Uh, typical, not typical. I had another quote from, from a white person I interviewed who said, my best friend is native, but he's not your typical native. <laughs> So what what does that mean about the typical native? Why wouldn't you be friends with? Oh. <laughs> what is what does oh. the typical native even even mean? Oh, right? yeah, uh, yeah. We oh. have good Indians in this town, right? So what is that saying about indigenous people elsewhere? And why are you saying that the indigenous people here are good? It turns out that for many people, it was because there was a sense that. Um, that they didn't really, that they weren't so confrontational, that they wouldn't uh, engage in the kinds of protests that were seen in other um, towns or cities uh, nearby at the time. In Fort Francis, things were, were relatively quiet at the time when I, when I did those interviews, and therefore uh, they get seen as, as good Indians because uh, they're not um, uh, stirring things up, rocking the boat. But as soon as you start standing up for your land, defending your rights, and and people, indigenous people in Fort Francis have done this and have done this increasingly uh, since the time that I did my research, um, then they start to be viewed as uh, as a threat uh, mm. by many mm. uh, white settlers and uh, no no longer qualify as so called good Indians. You know, it's interesting. It would be it would be interesting to to delve into what that threat might mean to them. What, what why it is that they are thinking that, that there is a threat, which makes sense from from everything you're saying. It sounds like that. It also sounds like there is this false sense of superiority that you refer to as well. That that is that is there. And if yeah. they have to have something in order to to be able to uh, distance them so that they can have that false sense of, of superiority. Yeah. Uh, because it would be too uncomfortable to be otherwise for whatever reason. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's part of the, the overall attitude that many settler Canadians carry is this is sense of group superiority, a sense of entitlement to land, to resources, to their uh, current uh, place in society. Um, and, and that um, uh, becomes threatened when Indigenous people do um, stand up for their land, for their water, for, uh, for their treaty rights, uh, when they assert uh, who they are, express uh, themselves as Indigenous people, uh, suddenly um, a settler sense of, of superiority and entitlement uh, may uh, appear to be under threat. So, for example, uh, when it comes to um, land claims, many settlers wonder, well, are, are they going to uh, take my land? Mm. What if the land that I'm on, um, <laughs> turns out, was not actually um, uh, not actually here through, through legitimate mm. uh, means? Mm -hmm. right? There's this underlying sense of, of insecurity, sure. actually, among many settler Canadians about their place, because there's a sense that something... Uh, something bad, something illegitimate may have happened, and that's partly why they uh, don't really want to know <laughs> mm. anymore. Um, mm. uh, but it's also, uh, in many cases, a, a lack of understanding of how uh, these land claims processes work, that they may not actually be uh, physically removed from that land or right. maybe other land uh, in lieu of or right. uh, so forth. So, 
Um, and you yeah, know, so that's one, one of the examples, but I think it's not only about um, material resources, certainly the, the land um, access to uh, hunting and fishing and these things are important for people in, in Northwestern Ontario. Um, but it is also that that overall sense of superiority, of control, of power, um, of wanting to know what's best. Um, that's part of the uh, the social psychology of many settler Canadians. That's that's deeply, deeply rooted, um, going back to um, the, the doctrine of discovery and some of these. Mm. Um, uh, early uh, racist ideologies, frankly, from uh, hundreds of years ago. Right. And yet it, it would seem that a great many uh, answers could come from actually looking more at this, look, looking closer at this. And, and if people were to look at this and, and not have that fear, uh, oh, I might lose my land, and so, you know, which, which is probably highly unlikely, uh, yeah. but uh, there's probably more to learn from that process because there could be a settlement. There could be more of a of an ease to both sides if it was looked at uh, in a very uh, equitable fashion uh, and moved forward. Um, COVID nineteen, uh, as you know, and I think you point out, has really uh, has really helped us to to see the, those inequities even larger than they were before. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you know, we have we also that something that came out a while a while a few years ago, truth and reconciliation, which yeah. which helped and seemed to raise the bar and and raise awareness on a lot of these things that people didn't seem to be aware of. How do you think that is helping this situation, or is it? Well, I think there's there's been a lot of talk of of reconciliation from various levels of government from. Uh, ordinary um, settler Canadians. Um, I think I think the TRC definitely helped raise um, public awareness about some of the issues among settler Canadians. There probably is more awareness now than even uh, ten or fifteen um, years ago, uh, and there is sort of this um, uh, a general um, uh, commitment in principle to this idea of reconciliation. Uh, but I think when it comes to actually making that happen, how does this play out in practice? Um, we've seen a lot less action, mm. uh, and that's what's really needed. If, if we're really serious about reconciliation, if we're serious about um, the TRC's calls to action, um, then, then some of the things that I think we would see um, uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, would be uh, number one, providing the necessary funding and supports for Indigenous uh, nations to to prevent and manage disease outbreaks. Uh, but instead, what we've seen is uh, Indigenous organizations suing the federal government for not providing mm. enough funding, for uh, providing um, inadequate uh, personal protective equipment and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's only after uh, having lawsuits or threats of lawsuits that the federal government suddenly finds uh, a little bit more funding for some of these things. Right. It shouldn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other part of it uh, would be uh, respect for Indigenous nations' uh, own uh, political autonomy and jurisdiction, um, uh, including um, the right to regulate who enters the community and on what terms. We've seen various um, First Nations implement um, states of lockdown to try mm -hmm. to keep um, the, the virus out of their communities. 
Um, and in some regions, uh, in some places, we've seen a, a backlash from settlers towards that. Why should I not be allowed to travel through their territory? This isn't fair, uh, and so forth. Um, and uh, and so again, if we're if we're serious about reconciliation, it would be respect for right. indigenous communities to make their own decisions about uh, about what happens on their land, who enters, and on what terms. Uh, I think that's all part of reconciliation. So. Um, there is this this opportunity from the crisis to um, to live up to it, but but in practice, I don't think we're actually uh, seeing uh, very much living up to this uh, talk of reconciliation. Hmm. Jeff, is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention just before we uh, finish up our time? Um. I guess, I mean, the, the one other thing that I would point out from the article and the book um, has to do with uh, with what I call the political avoidance norm. So even mm. when uh, many um, settler Canadians are, are not necessarily overtly racist, they don't hate Indigenous people or anything like that, um, but what we often do see um, is um, settler Canadians who don't want to talk about these issues, who'd rather avoid it, um, their silence in the face of the racism and colonialism around them. Uh, and that also helps to perpetuate um, the uh, inequities, perpetuate the injustices against Indigenous communities. So even the failure of that Dryden Town Council to speak out against mm-hmm. uh, Lynn uh, Bayek, that suggests that it's okay for her to hold those attitudes, that it's okay for her to post those racist letters uh, on her website. Uh, when there's racist incidents in Fort Francis or elsewhere, and uh, and many um, white residents say nothing, don't want to talk about it, right. that kind of suggests that it's okay, and it allows those situations to be uh, perpetuated. And so I think uh, for uh, for fellow um, settler Canadians, we have an obligation to uh, to not be silent, to speak out against racism, whether it's interpersonal or institutional. Uh, and to actually um, uh, live up to our uh, treaty obligations and build and build uh, respectful, meaningful relationships with Indigenous people. Mm. Okay, nicely said, Jeff. Appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and certainly share uh, both the article and your book. Uh, people can uh, find out more. Uh, they can find your book. Where can they find your book, by the way? Uh, it's published by uh, University of Toronto Press, mm-hmm. but they should be able to find it in, in many different bookstores um, across Canada. Okay. And that book, once again, is called Canada at a Crossroads, Boundaries, Bridges, and Laissez-Faire Racism in Indigenous Settler Relations. And that is written by our guest here on Element FM and Moment of Truth, Jeff Dennis, Associate Professor of Sociology at McMaster University. It was a pleasure to have you join us on the show today, and we thank you for your time. Thanks so much. I want to thank you, our listeners, for listening to Moment of Truth and Element FM. We will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show, uh, 
Doug Lennox is a senior class action lawyer at Clean Lawyers. He's based in Toronto, and Doug has acted for plaintiffs in class actions involving defective products, breaches of securities laws, institutional abuse, hospital negligence, and violations of consumer protection laws. And he has appeared on behalf of class action plaintiffs in courts in Ontario, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. So welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, David, for having me. Yeah, and we're here because just recently, 1st of June, uh, the Federal Court of Canada approved an order allowing the administrator of the 60s scoop class action to issue interim payments to uh, $21,000 uh, to eligible class members. And um, you're one of the four uh, uh, lawyer, lawyer um, organizations that are, are representing people in this. And uh, COVID-19 has, has kind of threw, thrown a bit of a wrench into this, I understand? Yeah, uh, COVID-19 created some challenges for us, and, and we just had to, to work through them and, and, and find a solution. Uh, the, the deadline for claims to be submitted uh, to this class action was in December. Mm. Uh, and there were more than 34,000 claims that were submitted. And then there's a process where we need to verify those claims. Uh, and that can involve going back through government records and archives uh, that, that um, you know, date back sometimes 50 or 60 years. Mm. Uh, and, and a number of those, those, those archives um, have been closed because of social distancing. Uh, and it was also difficult sometimes for um, survivors to meet with lawyers if they needed help because of social distancing. So COVID-19 created some, some, some problems, but, but the good news is, you know, the work has, has continued and um, we are very happy now uh, that thousands of survivors are finally getting their first check in this case. Uh, and, you know, this has been a, a long process and there's a lot of work still to be done. But um, I hope that this initial payment provides some comfort to survivors and that Canadians as a whole can can learn from this case and, and, and better understand this this sad chapter in our history so that we don't ever repeat it. Mm. Uh, you say it's a long process. How long has your firm been involved in, in with this? Uh, these are these are good questions. The first scoop class action was filed in in Ontario in 2009, so 11 years ago. Wow. Uh, we we came on on board in British Columbia in 2011. So so we've been working on this case for for nine years, and we will keep working on it until you know all the survivors who have uh, filed claims in the settlement uh, have, have either. Have either been successful or, or their claim has been adjudicated and, mm. and decided one way or the other. Mm. And uh, I, about twelve thousand five hundred people have uh, have uh, so far been deemed eligible, and I guess their payments are rolling out at this point uh, on a regular basis to them. Yeah, yes, they are, and 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 uh, many survivors uh, in that group have have uh, and now got their money. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I as I say, I hope it. It provides them with with some some comfort. There's mm. there's no amount of money that can compensate them for what they have lost, but but it is an initial payment, and and I, I expect you know by the time the case is resolved, there there will be a second check as well. Mm. 
Do you mind me asking uh, what you knew about the 60s scoop prior to getting involved with your your law firm getting involved with this? Uh, well, that's a good question. It's been a it's been a learning process for me. I mean, as a as a class action lawyer, I you know I was was well familiar with the story of the residential schools, mm. uh, and that you know has been I think one of the most important class actions that our legal system has ever seen. But I but I I didn't uh, initially know um, that that pattern of conduct had had continued and that the the 60 scoop was almost a sequel mm. to residential schools and so you know it has been a long learning process for me as I've dug through the documents and the history and and worked through experts uh, on this case to better understand it and 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 as I've heard so many stories from survivors mm. um, so so you know, I, I've learned a great deal, and I and I hope as a lawyer that that this case uh, does help to educate other Canadians who may not have been aware of the story. Right. Now you mentioned it's it's a long process. You said it's class action, so there's there's many people involved with this. Uh, many. Pl- uh, uh, People that are that are looking to possibly become eligible, and that means that uh, I, I'm just trying to, to get my head around how you how you coordinate how you 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 know uh, communicate with these people uh, simply because as you pointed out there's the, you know some of these archives have been closed at this point people would have questions they might be concerned about what's going to happen and um, how how does that part of this get dealt with is it is it individually is it a mass letter that goes out how, how do you guys communicate with with everyone uh communication with so many people is a, is a big challenge and one of the ways we try to communicate is with radio interviews like uh, mm. we're having right now mm. and, and i you know I, I thank you for for this opportunity uh but but as well uh, a, a good source of information for people who have questions about this is the is the website of the claims administrator mm. and and so if, if people will go there to uh 60 scoop settlement.info okay. um, they they can find information there and we try to keep it up to date there are frequently asked questions posted there and and so so that is a, you know a a good source of information for for people who have access to the internet um, they can also call the claims administrator, and, and uh, there's a toll-free number that they can call and get information. Uh, and they can call the four law firms. And, mm. and uh, our firm, primarily based in British Columbia, we, we are, are available to, to assist uh, class members uh, in our region. And, and there's, no, there's no charge for that. Like mm. we, We've already been paid for this case, so we're, right. we're happy if people call us and, and and we try to help them and there are law firms spread across the country that that uh, do the same work in, in other provinces and so people have um, you know a, a number of points where they can access to try to get information and 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 I understand that um, you know at the moment uh, obviously we're getting a, we're getting a lot of calls because there's a lot of people have sure. have a lot of questions about you know where's their check and how long it's going to take and, right. and uh, we try to to get answer those calls as as, as quickly as we can. Right. Uh, you mentioned being paid, so that this is uh, it was paid through the administrator's office. Is that right? 
we, we were paid by the, the courts, uh, courts. You know, some, some time ago as part of a class action. Right. Uh, when there's a settlement, there's, there's the money that will go to survivors. And then there's, there's, there's money that's also paid to the law firms because, you know, if, if, if the law firms aren't paid, they won't bring these cases and, and right. people won't have the opportunity to get compensation. Sure. We, right. we did, we did work on the case for, you know, almost a decade, uh, without payment. Wow. And so, uh, that's, that's how these things work. Mm. Uh, just going back to what I was asking you before, and, and you want to move on, because I want to find out if there's uh, any differences in the provinces. You mentioned British Columbia, uh, where the, I guess the head office of your, your law firm may be located. Um, yes. But as, a, as an individual, uh, in general terms, what's, what, what surprised you or what, what came to your attention going through this process that jumps out at you the, the most that you remember learning? that you were unaware of? I mean, the thing that that I really have taken from this and that has been so inspiring to me is the strength and the resilience of the survivors. Mm. Like when I hear their stories and I, and I think about what they've been through and that, that, that they're still here and that they've overcome challenges and that they, they have uh, achieved successes in their life. Mm. And, and, and I think about that and, and I think if, goodness if 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 i had gone through what they had gone through i don't know that i would have made it mm. and and so um for me personally i you know i just i'm i'm so touched by the 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 strength of survivors and 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 um you know i i, I want canadians to know the 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 survivors are people who've had terrible things happening with their kids, but they, they, they are strong and they, they have, um, they have made it this mm. far and, and, and they are working on healing and will continue to do so. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in one of those two coordinates along with ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Doug Lennox. He's a senior class action lawyer with Clean Lawyers, and he is based in Toronto. And Doug has acted uh, for plaintiffs in class actions involving defective products, breaches of securities laws, institutional abuse, hospital negligence, and violations of consumer product uh, protection laws. And so it's a pleasure to have him on here talking about uh, something that, that just recently happened. It was the federal court uh, approving uh, interim payments uh, for eligible 60s scoop class members. Uh, he is one of the four law, four law firms that are representing uh, the people in this case uh, in the class action. And uh, so payments for $21,000, the first interim payment has gone out to some. It's uh, continuing to roll out. COVID-19 has, has shut things down a little bit in terms of uh, gaining access to some information for, for other uh, people still going through the process. Uh, Doug, some of the the people have may have also received letters that, saying they they are not eligible. Um, now I see that you you are still encouraging people to get a hold of your office or one of the four law firms uh, so that they can you can look further into this to see if if there's a way to uh, to help them. Yes, um, there the, the, there are some people who got a letter which. It doesn't necessarily say that they're not eligible. It says mm. that the information that the oh right uh, 
claims, the, the information the claims administrator has right. has received to date uh, may not be sufficient. Okay. And is there more information that can be provided? Right. So, so it is an opportunity for us to work with the survivor and and look for additional information uh, that may assist them in in becoming eligible. Mm. Uh, in in some cases, I, I have found that the survivor may not have have understood the claim form and may have um, answered some questions in the claim form uh, inaccurately. Mm. And and so there are things we can do to to correct that information that will help the survivor to qualify. Right. Um, th there is you know it is it is a process as well that even if they the claims administrator is is still not satisfied with the answer after we have worked with the survivor, there is an appeal process. Mm. The the. Um, the claims administrator is not does not have the last word on this. There, there is a uh, a reconsideration officer who sits a, as an appeal court uh, above the claims administrator, and that is a retired judge. And so, uh, there there will be occasions where the claims administrator makes a decision that that I, as a, a lawyer, worked on the case, don't agree with, and and you know I will be there to to, to help. Uh, the survivor, um, you know, try to, to succeed on, on the appeal. Mm. Um, it, it is the case that in class actions that, that not everyone may be successful and there may be, you know, important reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, for example, I, I've seen a number of claims that were submitted in the settlement that were submitted by, by people who are Métis. Mm. Um, and, this particular class action was was not about the Métis. There is a separate case mm. about the Métis, right? Uh, and the legal issues regarding Métis are, are are a little different, and and that's why there's a separate case. So so if someone was rejected under the settlement, for example, because they're Métis, there may be another case that we can still help them with. Mm. Okay. Is there a difference in how things are approached uh, province by province? Is I, I don't. I don't think so. I. I, I think that uh, you know we've tried to divide up the work by province, just in terms mm. of where different law offices are are, right. are organized. Yep. I, I. I do think there are some historical differences by by mm. province in terms of um, you know how prevalent Scoop was. Mm. Uh, you know, in British Columbia, where we're based, I think Scoop was very common and. and uh, my 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 sense is that uh, you know about twenty five percent of the claimants um, appear to be uh, from British Columbia. Wow. Uh, that that it just it was it was quite prevalent here. But but it, it's something that I think happened across the country to to greater or, or lesser extent, and and it it does affect Indigenous people from 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 coast to coast to coast. Right. Uh, can we talk a little bit? You said uh, the, you talked about the process. Um, can we talk a little bit about the process uh, for people? W what is a, sort of a timeline, a general timeline that people might be uh, y looking at in in terms of this? Sure. So, I mean, the, the timeline was that that all the claims needed to be submitted um, by December. 
mm -hmm. uh, of, of 2019. And then since then, we have been uh, with the claims administrator reviewing all the claims and trying to validate the claims by, by checking uh, what, what survivors have said against what's, what's in uh, government archives. Mm. Um, and, and we've been doing that and there's more than 12,500 people that have been determined to be eligible. And that process is, is, is continuing. And as it continues, uh, more checks will, will go out. Um, there were, there are also letters that go out to people, um, who say, look, we need more information. And so we work with those individuals. Um, at, at, at some point, and I, it's, it's difficult for me to predict right now, but at some point we, we will be th through the entire 34,000 claims that we'll have, we'll have verified as many claims as we can. And we'll have had a process, uh, where, where everyone who needs to respond or appeal can, can do that. Um, and, and then we will know that the total number of, of eligible claims and and the second check can go out mm. uh, and and the the reason for that and this is common to many class actions is 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 you get a sum of money in this case up to we have up to 750 million dollars in funding um but we don't know exactly uh how to divide that up in terms of every individual mm. uh you know if you have you have a global amount of money and in a class action, you typically divide it between the total number of people and that's what people get. Mm. Um, it, it, in this case, it, you know, the original plan was we would uh, not pay anyone until we could pay everyone. Mm. Uh, but because of COVID-19 and, and just because of how much, how long it was taking, we realized, you know, that wasn't going to be a, a reasonable approach and so that was why we went back to court to to ask permission to to make this this change so we could give out an interim payment um we had we had uh uh you know 500 million dollars in initial funding for the settlement that was, was sitting in a bank account and i didn't want it to sit in a bank account mm. <laughs> i wanted to get it to clients <laughs> right uh and so the the twenty one thousand was was based on the fact that we we already had some money and and we wanted to get to get it to people because people it's it's their money, and and they need it. Mm. They're, we're all facing economic challenges at the moment, and so uh, you know that's what we've been doing. We we we'll, we'll keep we'll keep paying people going forward, and then at some point we'll we'll know what the second check is and how much it will be. Mm. I don't know how long that's going to take, but but I can promise that we will work as quickly as we can and we will keep people updated particularly through the claims administrator's website we'll we'll let people know where we are and and uh and uh you know as soon as we can uh, as soon as we can issue the second check we will right i'm, I'm glad you brought up the payment because i was going to ask if that was a generic uh, amount that that everyone was getting and or if there would be any uh, variance, you know, within within the individuals at all. Uh, that's a good question, and there there are different approaches in class actions, but I I think in this case we try to treat all the survivors equally. Mm -hmm. um, that that everyone is going to get the same amount, and and um, in in some respects, you know, everyone's experience with Scoop is is completely different, like how. Right. You know, in terms of 
what happened to them, what family they ended up with, what contact they may or may not have had with their biological family and community going forward. But in a, in a, in a key sense, they've all suffered. And so all the survivors should be treated the same and get the same compensation. Mm. What else would you like people to know that we haven't maybe touched on uh, as we just finish up our conversation here? Um, look, I, I'm very honored to have been able to work on this case. Uh, and it's, you know, this has been, this, this payment has been one small step uh, in a big journey, a long journey to uh, uh, try to, to heal and promote reconciliation. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have played a, a, a role in that. And I will continue to work for survivors until uh, this, this settlement is, is, is completed. And I, I, hope it, uh, I hope it helps help survivors and their families. Uh, Doug, we've been focusing, you know, on the case and and the payments that people will receive for this, um, which is great. Are there other aspects of, of a class action, other things that come into play that uh, that that can come out of this? For instance, you, you were you know you were just saying about how you hope this you know raises awareness that other Canadians become aware of this. Is there anything in there that might come out of this that that would say? And from this, you know, there will be greater education or there will be, you know, other things that will come out that will be mandated so that that happens? Oh, you've asked a very good question. And, 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 and uh, I, I do want to mention the uh, 60 Scoop Foundation that was created by the settlement. Mm. Uh, and that's a charitable fund. Uh, uh, $50 million was allocated to the foundation and they will be promoting and funding reconciliation projects in honor of survivors across the country uh, for, for years to come. Mm. Uh, I'm expecting their report on uh, projects that they want to uh, undertake later this month. And so uh, that was a, a important component of the settlement was not just money directed towards survivors, but um, money directed to a foundation that can help communities and can help the nation as a whole. Right. Great. Uh, Doug, just before we go, do you want to give out that uh, that um, uh, website again that you mentioned earlier in the program? Sure. Uh, 60scoopsettlement.info. Right. Great. So for people that want to find out more, they can go there. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, come onto the show and, and share this information with us and tell us about the, the, uh, the 60 Scoop. Uh, class action uh, settlement that's taking place and uh, what's happening and how it's going to be rolling out uh, uh, in the future for these people as well. Thanks, David. Our pleasure. That's uh, Doug Lennox. He's a senior class action lawyer at Clean Lawyers. He's based in Toronto, and he's acted uh, for plaintiffs in class actions involving defective products, as well as breaches of security laws, institutional abuse, hospital negligence, negligence and vi violations of consumer protection laws. And uh, he's also uh, appeared on behalf of class action plaintiffs in courts in Ontario, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. It was a pleasure to have him on the show. And that is our show for today. So we want to thank you, our listeners, as always, for listening right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.